From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. What's the big deal with Tofurky? Well, the ACLU of Arkansas recently sued the state over a law that would prohibit Tofurky and other makers of meat substitutes from using the word meat on any of its packaging. But that's just one of the remarkable cases being tried in Arkansas right now. For a small state, it's got a lot going on. This year alone, the ACLU of Arkansas has litigated cases ranging from the boycott of foreign entities, the right to ask passers-by for assistance, the right to abortion, and the constitutionality of religious symbols outside government buildings, among many others. Today, we'll be talking with Holly Dixon, the legal director and interim executive director of the ACLU of Arkansas, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. A lifelong Arkansan, Holly has spent her career fighting for civil rights and civil liberties in the state, and she's been with the ACLU since 2006. We'll ask her what's it like to work at the ACLU of Arkansas in the current political climate and why the state has so many fascinating cases at the moment. Holly, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be with you today. Thank you, Emerson. So, Holly, we've been wanting to talk to you for quite some time, but you've understandably been very, very busy. So now that we have you, can you tell us what's going on with Arkansas? Why so many big cases this year? There are always big cases out of Arkansas. For a small state, we have lots of issues always. Now, if it's a case that we can try to resolve without having to file suit, we almost always try to do that because it's best for the client, it's best for the cause. We save our gunpowder for the litigation that we have to bring. There's a lot of students' rights or education issues that we resolve and the public never hears about because the last thing that a public school student typically needs is a federal lawsuit. If we can get someone's free speech rights reinstated or their voting rights reinstated without having to litigate, that's what's best for everyone. And then we reserve our energies and our resources for those cases that we absolutely have to bring. It's interesting to hear you talk about how litigation is just one of the tools in your toolbox. And I want to come back to those things. But in the meantime, let's start with you. And how did you really come to be a civil rights attorney? Well, that was an interesting and really natural progression. I, even as a child, was concerned about backwards social justice issues in our state, and I learned at an early age that race really matters, status really matters, and so I had large concerns about those. I originally was interested in becoming an environmental law, you know, Arkansas being natural resources rich as we are. I was concerned about the quality of the air and the water and the land and the fact that those resources cannot speak for themselves. But I ended up going to work at a small but powerful firm here in Little Rock with an attorney who did civil rights litigation. And he began to map for me the minefield that is civil rights litigation. And I quickly understood that while people can speak for themselves, often their voices are not heard and they get lost in the justice system. And so I was fortunate enough to fall into a practice with really good teachers who worked in cases about civil rights and was able to work on those cases and did some plaintiff's labor and employment. I did a lot of that work as well as constitutional rights litigation. And after eight or so years of grinding it out on those, it became very clear to me that what the judicial system offers 
falls short of justice all too often. And while our clients were getting compensated for the harms that they had suffered, I felt like I needed to do something more to stop the systemic discrimination that I saw, the types of abuses that I was seeing, because I was to the point that I felt like I was suing the same government or the same types of employers over and over for the same types of issues and violations. And so I wanted to find a way to make a larger impact and sort of lift us up as a state on where we are on social justice and prevent some of these harms that I saw over and over that were perpetrated on my clients. And so it turned out that an opening was available at the ACLU of Arkansas for a staff attorney, and I applied and I was fortunate enough to become the staff attorney here, and that was in 2006. And so I've definitely put those litigation skills to use, but I've also learned a lot of things that they do not teach in law school. Well, the ACLU is extremely lucky to have you, and you started out as a staff attorney and then became legal director, and now, as I mentioned, you're the interim executive director. So your responsibilities have grown over time, but you've been at this now for a while, and I'm curious how the fight has changed. You said that you got frustrated with suing the same folks over and over again and wanted to take more of a policy perspective with the ACLU. But how has the work itself changed over the decades? You've been doing this work under several presidential administrations and governorships. Is it different now than it has been in the past? Well, the people change. We have term limits in our state, and so our constitutional officers and our state legislators change, but a lot of the work remains the same. The issues change. We have marriage equality now, but we're still very much behind on having equal protection under the law for people, regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Some of the issues that I first took up when I came here we still work on today. We had a lot of anti-immigrant legislation that first legislative session in 2007. Then we saw those kinds of bills drop off, and then they have started again. And for those, it's like riding a bicycle. I just dust off that old file or the memory of the Fourth Amendment or Equal Protection Clause, and it's the same situation but different day. The law remains pretty steady, whether we're talking about reproductive liberty or immigrants' rights or free speech. And it just seems a lot of times bad ideas are recycled, whether it's someone who's just not giving up on their idea that would attack civil liberties or it's someone who doesn't have the institutional memory and doesn't know what our history is on that A lot of times when it comes to state legislation or practices of government officials, whether they're school administrators or mayors or police chiefs or whatnot, they just didn't know what the law was. And so that's where our outreach to officials to say, hey, you know, the Fourth Amendment says this, and it's our understanding you're doing the opposite. Let us know if you're going to knock that off immediately so that we can get rights restored. And we've had a lot of success with that. Well, I want to turn now to some of the cases and talk about them specifically. And first, I want to talk about a case that I think is actually new, and it's certainly one of your most talked about cases. It's the Tofurky case, which has given headline writers endless opportunities for puns. But we think there's an actual real First Amendment issue here. Basically, what happened is Arkansas passed a law that said that meat alternatives cannot be advertised using the word meat. 
Why do we think this is important and why do we think this is a violation of the First Amendment? Well, it's a violation of the First Amendment on two sides of the coin. It's a violation of the rights of the manufacturers of these products to accurately label and describe them and market them to the public. And it's a violation of the public's right to receive information about these products and what their intended use and purpose and expected flavors would be. And the issue underlying this is the fact that basically the government is trying to give a competitive advantage to the agricultural industry. I think the real reason that we're seeing these laws now is because vegetable-based food products now have a more perfected taste. And so their competitive advantage is really getting stronger, and that's scary to the agricultural industry. And so we've seen these different laws cropping up across the country in various iterations, and they're different from state to state, what they can market, what they can say, what the penalties are. And so it makes it absolutely impossible for the manufacturers to be competitive and to remain in business if we're going to allow this kind of patchwork attacks on the free speech rights of those companies. They're not saying anything that's misleading. It's absolute factual information, and it's ridiculous for the government to say, well, this is misleading consumers. Arkansas consumers, I grocery shop just like the rest of the Arkansans, and We're not confused. We're not wandering around the grocery store in pandemonium and confusion about what we're buying or not buying. The system is working fine as it is, and so that's why we felt it was important to keep the status quo so that these companies can continue to sell their products in a fair marketplace and consumers can continue to know what it is that they're buying. The briefing in this case had some amazing examples saying, you know, are hot dogs misleading because they're not made of dog? Are hamburgers misleading because they don't have ham in them? Obviously not. And meat alternatives are not misleading just because they use the word meat. But as you said, it sort of gets at this underlying issue, right? This big issue in part about climate change and people worried about the carbon footprint of their food and therefore looking for plant-based alternatives. And we're seeing sort of a backlash in trying to limit the competitiveness of these plant-based foods. And I think it reminds me of another case that you've been working on, another First Amendment case where you got a big win just this election day, and it's around panhandling. And I think you, I want to hear you describe the clients in that case and what was really at issue. But in the same way that the Tofurky case could be actually about climate change and the carbon footprint of our agricultural industries, this panhandling case in some way speaks to me about the rampant income inequality that we have in our society and the ham-handed ways in which government tries to fix it. Absolutely, Emerson. These laws and their enforcement were all about criminalizing the poor. And when I came here in 2006, I inherited an accordion folder marked homelessness, and I couldn't have been more delighted because I knew that homeless and food and shelter insecure people were facing criminal penalties. And we actually reached out to some people who help serve people who are food insecure and looked at whether we could bring a case. But when you are living outside, it's very difficult to add to the list of your responsibilities to be a plaintiff in a federal lawsuit. And we had a case involving voter ID and represented 
a couple of clients who did not have housing. And because they didn't have identification, they also couldn't vote. And they would occasionally, as they call it, fly a sign, hold a sign on the sidewalk asking for assistance and were repeatedly arrested for holding that that sign. One of the clients had a sign that said, homeless, broken, hungry. And the police officer who arrested her told her that you could only hold religious signs on the sidewalk, which of course is not accurate constitutional analysis. And so she went to jail and she's a religious person. And when she came out, she added, God bless to her homeless, broken, hungry son. And she was arrested for that, too. So we had enough dragons to slay to try to make sure that people still had their right to vote, even if they were poor or had other impediments to obtaining ID. And um, it so happened that we received a couple of complaints from gentlemen who were veteran or disabled and would ask for money or assistance to help make sure that they could make it in this world. And so they were facing criminal charges under the state law. So when we received these complaints and we got their criminal charges dismissed, then we filed suit in federal court challenging the state law that made it a crime to beg. So we were successful in challenging that old state law that was being used to criminalize homeless people who are asking for help. So the attorney general is making noises about trying to ask for reconsideration or appealing that case, but it's very clear. You're going to allow Girl Scouts to sell Girl Scout cookies. You're going to allow politicians to solicit campaign funds. You're going to let firemen pass the boot, but you don't want poor people asking for help. And that is a content-based discrimination on speech that is unconstitutional. And it's really immoral, unconscionable that we would do that. Two federal courts have now said that the law that you challenged was blatantly unconstitutional. As you said, it can't possibly be that only poor people are not allowed to hold signs up while firefighters and others are. I appreciate you bringing up the point that what actually the government needs to do is to deal with these underlying problems, not criminalize homelessness. I wanted to just talk about one other free speech case, and it's one that we talked about with an ACLU attorney, my colleague Brian House, during a previous episode, and it was concerning an Arkansas law that requires contractors with the state to sign a certification that they will not participate in a boycott of Israel. And our client in that case is the Arkansas Times, which incidentally had no intention of boycotting Israel, but also had no intention of signing a loyalty oath of any kind. We have some audio from Alan Leverett, founder and publisher of the Arkansas Times. I'm a citizen, okay? I pay taxes in this state, and, I, and I, this is my home. And no, they do not have a right to punish me for exercising my constitutional right to be silent. In this, in this instance, it's just to be silent. We don't take a position on this. Our job is to write about Arkansas. We're a lot more interested in Medicaid expansion here in Arkansas than we are what's going on in Jerusalem. So the only government contract the Arkansas Times has is running ads for the local community college campus, but the state asked them to sign the certification nonetheless. Unfortunately, this case isn't going as well as we had hoped. Can you just update us on where this case stands since we filed suit in federal court? Well, the federal court said that there was not a right to boycott, and therefore the government attempting to tell these journalists what they could and couldn't 
ride or call for was not a violation of free speech. And of course, we very much disagree with that. The right to boycott has been an important tool in changing the face of civil rights and civil liberties. And as Brian noted in court, the revolutionaries were boycotting England. So all the way back to King George, their boycott has been a part of the fabric of our nation and an important one that we strongly believe is protected under the First Amendment. This state law is absurd for many reasons, but one of the most absurd provisions is that it says you can't contract with the state unless you agree not to boycott Israel in the future, or if you take a 20% discount off the state contract price, then you can boycott all you like. But as long as you give the state a 20% discount, those fundamental important interests the state is trying to protect are not so important anymore. Well, that's a sort of a preliminary loss in the boycott case, which hopefully the appeals court will overturn and bring in line with actual Supreme Court precedent. But I wanted to talk about another big win that you had recently in an abortion case, which is Little Rock Family Planning Services versus Rutledge. Can you tell us briefly what the laws you were challenging in that case would have done and why you thought it was important to block them? We challenged three new laws one of which would have banned abortion starting at 18 weeks, which is, of course, a pre-viability point in pregnancy. Another law imposed a blanket ban on abortion prior to viability based solely on the woman's reason for seeking care. And then a third law that we have challenged prohibits highly qualified, trained physicians from providing safe, legal abortion care in Arkansas if they're not board certified or board eligible in obstetrics or gynecology. And so that was aimed at ensuring that the providers that we've had in this state for many years who are doing a fine job of taking care of their patients could no longer provide that patient care. So we challenged those three laws in one case and took it to federal district court and the judge enjoined those three laws. And of course, the state has appealed that injunction. But as it stands right now, those laws are not in effect and in place. Well, congratulations on the win. But I'm wondering, is it too early to celebrate? I know that we've had several conversations with our colleagues working on reproductive justice, both at national and in different states. And I'm wondering if this is part of the broader national chess game where advocates are trying to get the Supreme Court to revisit Roe v. Wade. Do you see this case going up to the Supreme Court eventually? Oh, I definitely think the state will try to take it to the Supreme Court. It is absolutely part of the effort to overturn Roe v. Wade. Our legislators who propose and pass these bills have made no secret of the fact that they want to overturn Roe v. Wade, and it's like there's a competition to see who may be able to do that. We've had a 12-week ban that we had to have struck down. We've had all kinds of challenges to these laws, but we cannot rely solely on the courts to protect the right to reproductive liberty. We need people who support people's right to make private, personal decisions about their medical care and whether and when to bear children to communicate that to elected officials and hold their feet to the fire if they don't support them. In the past four years, there have been 25 or more laws passed in Arkansas solely around abortion. One session, we had a wonderful bill that 
allowed telemedicine for everything except abortion, including taking the morning after pill. That health care could not be provided by telemedicine. And obviously, telemedicine is very important in a rural state like ours, where people may not have access to health care readily available, or they have to travel, or it's cost prohibitive, or things of that nature. And so we have filed, I want to say, seven or eight cases in the last several years, challenging 11 or 12 different laws, maybe more. But there are always laws that still remain on the books. And so the list and litany of things that the doctors have to say to their patients, some of it even untrue that the state imposes, is amazing. What they don't require is the doctors to actually tell women about the risks of pregnancy. So it's very much targeted exactly at the woman's right to an abortion. And we'll keep fighting in the courts. We'll keep fighting in the legislature. But folks are going to have to step up and fight at the ballot box. We're very grateful for all of your work in the courts. But as you said, elections certainly do matter. I want to come back to what you said was your first animating inspiration to enter this world of civil rights and civil liberties. We talked a little bit about the criminalization of poverty and other marginalized folks, but also about racial justice and how core that was for you. Recently, you wrote an op-ed where you said, Arkansas holds the shameful distinction of having the fastest growing prison population in the country, draining money from other priorities, exacerbating racial disparities, and failing to make our communities safer. Mass incarceration is obviously a nationwide problem, but why does Arkansas specifically have this distinction of having the fastest growing prison population, and what is the ACLU trying to do about it? Instead of providing pre-K or adequate education or mental health prevention and treatment or addiction treatment, we put people in jail and prison. We jail and imprison people because they cannot pay their fees, fines, and costs. We have to stop that. You know, the U.S. Supreme Court told us in the 70s in a case called Bearden versus Georgia, you're not supposed to be locked up if you're unable to pay your fees, fines, and costs. Debtors' prisons are not supposed to exist in America. But even though the courts are supposed to inquire about ability to pay before they uh, jail or put you in prison because of it, that had not been happening. We had one client who was affected by this and had been to jail about 20 times over the same two hot checks over about a two-decade period. So at one point, he was two days away from getting a new job, and they picked him up for non-payment on those fees, fines, and costs. And it's widespread. Our courts are doing better now. A lot of our judges are conducting those questions and answers with people before the court to make sure that they are able to pay before they require them to pay and then jail them for non-payment. But even in our parole system, there was a case out of Western Arkansas where the man was near the end of his six-year parole term. He had done everything the state told him to do, meet with his parole officer, take and pass his drug tests, maintain employment, except he had not paid all the fees, fines, costs, restitution that were ordered by the court. And because he was unable, he wasn't even sheltered. He did not have housing. He was able to achieve all these other things. 
and the prosecutor filed a petition for parole revocation. Judge granted it, and this man who had worked so hard in challenging circumstances to become, again, a reintegrated productive member of his community, they plucked him out and put him in prison for six months where he had to start all over again. So it's really a broken cycle. And until recent years, there had been no study about the racial inequities in our criminal justice system. And so working with our national office and the Urban Institute, we undertook a survey and research of our system and through our state blueprint for reducing incarceration. We've come up with numerous initiatives to try to combat not only this addiction on incarceration that we have, but also the racial disparities in the system. And so there are a lot of things that we don't know, but there are a lot of things that we do. And one thing where we're woefully behind is really accountability for police. Most of the professions in this state and across the nation have a state professional or ethics standards board so that if they violate professional standards, you can complain to them and they can investigate and take appropriate action, whether it's education or resources, a reprimand, a suspension, or taking licensure when it's warranted, whether it's doctors, lawyers, teachers, beauticians, pool cleaners, bail bondsmen, Almost every profession has an ethics or standards board you can complain to, but police do not. They do have a licensing board, but that licensing board does not take complaints from the public. Holly, I want to close by taking a bit of a step back. You're the legal director at the ACLU of Arkansas, and I'm curious how you choose among these variety of challenges in front of you and how you maintain your passion throughout all of the challenges that are in front of you. That's a really good question. It's one of the things that I asked when I was first interviewed for the job here at the ACLU back in 2006. How do you pick and choose your cases? And it really is more of an art than a science and obviously depends on what resources we have available. We recruit attorneys who are licensed in the state of Arkansas. We ask them to dedicate or volunteer their time to take these cases up. Sometimes I get three no's and then a yes. Sometimes I get an immediate yes. Sometimes I don't get any yeses. So there are resource questions. But then also look for impact cases. What cases will help correct the law or defend the law that will help the most number of people or make sure that we have proper laws in place? And it's really interesting because we have amazing clients and they're exactly the types of clients that I had in private practice. They are upset because a wrong has been perpetrated toward them, but what they want more than anything is for this never to happen again to them or anyone else. And so our clients tend to look for opportunities where they can actually change the law or get the law declared such that people's rights will be respected from this point forward. And that's the type of case that we look for. Someone described it as kill as many birds as possible with the one stone that we have. And some things are just so egregious and unconstitutional that you pretty much have to challenge it. Well, Holly, I can't thank you enough for all of your great work on behalf of the people of Arkansas. 
And we really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. And I'm fortunate. I get to come to work every day and work on things that I care about. So I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I appreciate you so much and all of our members and supporters and cooperating attorneys and everybody who makes the ACLU of Arkansas tick. Happy 50th birthday. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace. Peace.